Good evening to you on this Tuesday night. It's a delight to see you. Someone was mentioning to me last night that they were able to watch uh, CounterPoint on uh, regular programming or some programming around here, but then they changed to this network and they weren't able to see it anymore. I've got good news for you. If you fall into that category on Tuesday nights at 6 o'clock Central, it's available nationally on direct and dish networks, uh, channels 267 if you're a dish network subscriber, channel 267, and if you're a direct TV subscriber, that's channel 376. The reason I mention that to you is as a tool of evangelism, I'm so grateful for some of the stories that come back to us from those who watch the program there was a church in Connecticut where I was preaching some years ago, and there was a brother there that really wanted his wife to come to the gospel meeting, but she wouldn't come to the meeting itself. But I mentioned the program during the introduction to one of the messages, and she was willing to start watching the program in the comfort of their own living room, in the safety of their own living room. She didn't feel intimidated there at all, and uh, he told me, she has watched it every week with me, and she is this close to obeying the gospel of Christ. And one of my favorite counterpoint stories is about a man in Georgia who was watching the broadcast. We were talking about baptism, and he got a little aggravated with us, so he turned off the program. But then he wondered what we might be saying, and so he turned it back on. And then he got a little annoyed, and he turned it off. But then he got curious and he turned it back on and this time he took pen and paper and started writing down scriptures. These scriptures then made their way to the preacher's office where he attended in a local church in that area and he wanted that preacher to explain why the preacher was saying baptism is not essential to salvation when these verses clearly show that it is and uh, his preacher said, I don't have time to talk about that with you. And I'm not even going to waste our time having a discussion about it. And he said, all right. And so can you imagine this scene? You're worshiping there in a rural congregation in Georgia. And here comes a family of five walking in your doors. For the first time you've ever seen them. You've never seen them before. They've never visited before. But they came walking in your building, all of them carrying a towel under their arm because the family of five came to be baptized that day. And that service was indeed punctuated with joy because they learned the truth by watching uh, the program. And so I'm grateful for stories like that that exist. And I know that this area has a lot of emphasis on uh, those kinds of programs. The last time I was here, when I was checking into the hotel, the lady asked me, if I was the one who was on that program. And I said, yes, ma'am. And then when I was leaving, I went by the bank to make a deposit. And the bank teller said to me through the window, are you the one? And I, yes, ma'am. And so there are people watching and they're learning. And they have an opportunity to get the truth. And maybe they wouldn't come to you to the, with, with you to the meeting, but maybe you can get them to watch the program uh, along with some other good ones that are out there. We're just advertising that one as one of many you could choose from. Now, I want to describe someone to you, and I want you to evaluate, based on your knowledge of the Scriptures, 
I want to evaluate uh, this man's status before God. I'll tell you this about him. He is extremely generous. He's a very generous man. He gives a lot of his money to help the poor and the needy. And he's very compassionate towards those who are in need. He's also a very religious man. He fears God and he instructs his house to do the same. He thinks that God ought to be recognized as real and that his word ought to be respected. And this man that I'm describing to you is also a very prayerful individual. In fact, he prays to God all the time. He prays to God always. He gives a lot of his money to the poor and the needy. He has a brilliant reputation among those who are not members of his race, those who are of a rival race, you might say, in the minds of some, as they see it at least. Uh, They view him with a high degree of praise. And I want to know what's your assessment of the man I've just described. Fears God with all of his house, prays to God all the time, gives a lot of money to the poor and the needy, lost or saved. You say, well, Brother Clark, we're not supposed to judge whether a man is lost or saved. I recognize the father has committed the judgment to his son, John 5.22. I also recognize this. His son said that the word that he has spoken, the same, the same word he has spoken, will judge men in the last day. A little boy came up to his granddaddy while his granddaddy was reading his Bible on the porch swing. The boy said to his granddaddy, he said, Granddaddy, what are you doing? He said, well, I guess you might say I'm studying for my final exam. And that's really true. This book is going to judge us. Uh, Romans 2.2, the judgment of God is according to truth. And John 17, 17, thy word is truth. And by the way, those who judge that we should not judge have themselves made a judgment, have they not? I have judged that it is wrong for you to judge. It's okay for me to judge that you're wrong to judge, but you can't tell me that I'm wrong to judge you for judging. And this is the self-contradictory mess that we get ourselves into when we start acting like we can never come. Now, there is a type of judgment forbidden. Matthew 7 says that harsh, fault-finding judgment that keeps seeing all the faults in others but doesn't even see our own. I don't know if you heard about this fellow. He's not too bright. You might have heard of him. He got back from his honeymoon and he said, Honey, I hope you won't mind now that we're back from our honeymoon if I point out to you what I consider to be some of your biggest faults. And his wife said, no, I don't mind at all. After all, it was those faults that kept me from getting a better husband. (laughs) That'll put you in your place right quick, won't it? I don't want to be that individual that is uh, finding fault with others when I'm not even looking at the log that's sticking out of my own eye. But you know what we miss about that text sometimes? Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged in Matthew 7. But interestingly, some people think that's the only verse in the Bible on the subject of judging. The same word of God that says, judge not that you be not judged, and then classifies the type of judgment that is not to be engaged in, that same word of God that says, judge not, says in John seven twenty four, judge not according to appearance, 
but judge righteous judgment. Now, you just sang a song a moment ago, and it seemed like you were singing it with conviction. I know, I know my name is there. How do you know that your name is there? You would have to make a judgment based on information from somewhere to know whether your name is written on the book of life or in the book of life. How do you know that? Well, you say, I can take my Bible and I can glean the information and then make a judgment as to whether I've obeyed what this book says to do. And I want to show you now what the Bible says about the man I just described to you. Surely you and I would agree the Bible has a right to judge this man and to say whether he's lost or saved. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 14, this is what is said of the man I just described to you, the prayerful giving, God-fearing man. The Bible says in Acts eleven fourteen that he, this man, was told, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. True or false, Cornelius, when we first meet him, was a good man. That's true. True or false, when we first meet Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he was a God-fearing man. I know the Bible says he was. He feared God with all his house. And when we first meet Cornelius, he is a prayerful man. He prayed to God always. I would suggest to you, those of us who are Christians here tonight, to ask yourself this question. Is Cornelius more prayerful before he obeys the gospel than you and I are after obeying the gospel? I don't want someone who's not even yet a a child of God as he needs to be, to be more prayerful in spirit at least than I am. I want to be a man of prayer. And this man prayed to God always and he gave much alms to the people. He didn't give just a little bit. The Bible says he, verse 2 of Acts 10, gave much alms to the people. And yet he's got a problem. As good and moral and giving as he is, he needs the blood of Christ. And my friends, N.B. Hardiman in his famous tabernacle sermons preached a sermon on Cornelius that I remember reading as a young preacher boy. And I remember one of the statements that he made in that great series of sermons was this. He said, you stand up beside Cornelius, the portrait of Cornelius painted on the canvas of Scripture. You stand up and have your portrait put side by side with the portrait of Cornelius and you might be able to equal his moral excellence, but you won't surpass it. And yet this man, the good moral man, was a good moral sinner in need of salvation. He had some good morals, but he had some sin that could only be dealt with by the blood of Christ. So what's he going to do? As he's praying to God, on one occasion, the Bible says in verse 3, he sees in a vision, and this was at a time when those kinds of things were happening, and sometimes God did speak in this manner back then, Now he's given us the totality of his revelation. And if I want to know anything God wants me to know, I don't wait for a still small voice in the night or some kind of sign. I've got scripture and I can read it all in its entirety. But this man 
needed some information about where to get the information he needed in order to be saved. And I find it fascinating. God didn't say, Cornelius, I want to tell you what to do to be saved directly. You just listen right now and I'll tell you. He doesn't tell him what to do. He tells him to send for a man who will come and tell him what he must do because it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. And so I know that Cornelius needed to send for the apostle Peter. Why? So that Peter could come and tell him what he ought to do. Look at Acts chapter 10. And by the way, the setting for this is Caesarea. It's there on the Mediterranean, and here is Cornelius. He is a very powerful man, a centurion of the Italian band, and yet he's a very humble man. He listens, and he asks the question, verse 4, what is it, Lord? And the statement is made that his prayer and his alms were uh, certainly something that God had certainly knew were happening. God was recognizing the fact that he'd been offering those things to God, but he still has to do something. Send men to Joppa. Now Joppa's 30 miles down the seacoast. According to the text there in verse number 3, it's about the ninth hour of the day. This is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now a 30 mile trip back then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon didn't get you there by 3.30. You didn't just hop on a, a bus or in a car or mass transit and just get quickly to where you were wanting to go 30 miles away. It was quite a journey back then. And I want you to notice, after he was told to send men to Joppa, verse 5, and told where Simon Peter was staying, he was staying in another house, or in a house with another Simon, rather, who was a tanner. His house was by the seaside. Now watch the last phrase of verse 6. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. So I'm going to be looking with you for what he is told he ought to do. Because whatever it is he's told to do, he ought to do it. It is essential. So notice now, verse number 7, the angel departs. Cornelius could have said, you know, it's late in the day. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I tell you what, we'll just get a good start in the morning. No, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier. And even though it's late in the afternoon, mid-afternoon for them, he sent them to Joppa, 30-mile trip, and said, go ahead and start right now. We're not waiting till morning. What urgency he had in his heart to know the will of God. Do you have that same kind of urgency to want to know this book as soon as you possibly can? That was Cornelius. Now here's scene two. It's the next day. It's Joppa. And what is going on? The Apostle Peter is hungry. It's about noon. And he's up on the housetop. Verse 10 says he's very hungry. And they're making preparations. And while they're making preparations, he falls into a trance. And what does he see? He sees a great sheet knit at the four corners. And within it, he sees all manner of four-footed beasts and creeping things and fowl of the air, things that were not lawful under the law of Moses for a Jew to eat. But of course, God's changed the covenant system now, and now there is a new covenant in place. And I want you to notice that Peter's going to have to come to terms with this. There is a voice that accompanies all these formerly unclean beasts, and here's what the voice says in verse 13. Rise, Peter. 
kill and eat. Now Peter makes what is one of the most contradictory statements you could ever make. Not so, Lord. Stop. If he's Lord, you don't say not so to him. Not so, Lord. Well, wait, if he's your Lord, you don't say not so to him. If he says rise, kill, and eat, then because he's the Lord, you rise, you kill, you eat. Well, Peter was thinking that he'd never eaten anything common or unclean, and it wasn't about to start now. The voice came back a second time in verse 15. What God has cleansed, don't you call common or unclean. And this happened, the Bible says, three times, and then the vessel is taken back up into heaven, and Peter is trying to figure out what this means, and that's when the Holy Spirit lets him know that there are some men seeking him, and that he should go with them, nothing doubting. And so Peter goes down, verse number 21, to the men sent to him from Cornelius. He says, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And then notice they said, verse 22, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, one that feareth God and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into his house and to hear words of thee. Does Peter say, well, it sounds to me like the man you're describing is already saved. I'm not going to make a trip that's not necessary. This man you've described is just, and he fears God with his house. I don't see any need to make the journey. No, Peter doesn't do that. Peter recognizes that this is an urgent matter and one that calls for preaching. And so he goes with them, and that brings us to scene number 3, verse 24. The morrow after they entered into Caesarea, what's Cornelius doing while he's waiting for Peter to come to him? I want to ask you, and I'm not saying this in an accusatory way. You've known this gospel meeting was coming. You've known there's going to be some gospel preaching going on during the meeting. And for that matter, you know this Sunday after this meeting is over, there's going to be some gospel preaching going on from this pulpit. When Cornelius knew that a gospel preacher was coming, what did he think that should cause him to do? Watch what he did, Acts chapter 10 and verse number 24. In the last part of the verse, he called together his kinsmen and near friends. I'm just asking, I'm not accusing. How many kinsmen and near friends have you called and invited to this gospel meeting? Is Cornelius more prayerful than those who are already children of God? Is Cornelius more evangelistic in getting people to come hear a preacher than those who are already members of the church? He has gone out and said, look, a preacher's coming and I want to invite you to be there to hear him. What a marvelous mentality that if every child of God would adopt this mentality, we would have more and more souls being saved, would we not? Here is here's Cornelius showing the urgency of this preaching. So Peter comes in, Cornelius meets him, as even though he's a centurion and could have acted like I'm in charge, he falls down before Peter. Peter doesn't want any of that. He's not the Pope. 
He is not the one who deserves worship. He recognizes that. He says, stand up, verse 26, I myself also am a man. I'm just a man. Angels should not worship or accept worship. And men should not accept worship because only God should be worshipped and Peter's not God. My friends, he starts talking with them and uh, he says, you know how it's unlawful for a man that's a Jew, verse 28, to keep company or to come to one of another nation? God has showed me though, I shouldn't call any man common or unclean. So I came as soon as you sent for me and what have you sent for, why do you want me to come here and Cornelius then explains. Watch verse number 30. Four days ago, I was fasting until this very hour. At the ninth hour, I prayed in my house. There's some more praying going on. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Cornelius, thy prayers heard. Your alms are had in remembrance and the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa. Call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter, He's going to speak to you and watch verse 33. Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee. I didn't wait till the next day. I sent folks to you the moment I was told this. I sent to you immediately and you've done well to come. And verse 33. Now, therefore, I love this. Are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God? You tell us exactly what God wants us to know, even if it's different than what we might have already come to believe. I did a Bible study some years ago with a young girl, and after showing her how to become a New Testament Christian, she went to her sister and she said, Oh, you have got to see what I learned. You've got to see what I learned. And her sister said, I will not study with you. I'm afraid of what I might learn. I'm satisfied with my religion I'm not going to check it out. I'm going to just rest in it and not bother to check it out. Friends, as I summarize this story and give you the quick application lessons from it, I want you to consider that Peter begins to preach the gospel and knows that God is not a face looker, the most literal meaning of no respecter of persons. God is not a face looker. He doesn't look at your face or mine to determine whether he will or won't love us. He doesn't look at the color of our skin and then say, well, okay, because you're this color skin, I'll love you, but if you were another color, I wouldn't. What do we teach our children when they're growing up? Jesus loves the little children. How many? All the children of the world. And then what do we say? Red, yellow, black, white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. But question, when the black little children and the red little the yellow little children, the red, yellow, black, and white little children grow up and become adults, does God still love them? Does Jesus still love them? Yes or no? You know he does. All men can be saved. We learned that from Acts chapter 10. That's the first message I want to give to you from this text. All men can be saved, no matter what their gender, no matter what their economic status, no matter what their ethnic status. God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted of him. Acts chapter 10 and verse number 35. And so Peter begins preaching this 
sweet story of the cross to Cornelius about how Jesus had gone and done so many things and had proven himself to be of God. And they slew him and hung him on a tree, according to verse 39. But God raised him up the third day and showed him openly. And then he presented himself before many witnesses. And uh, the apostles would attest to the fact that it was through him that remission of sins would come. Now watch verse number 44. Peter's still speaking, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles that were hearing the word. And the Jews of the circumcision are astonished, saying, look at this. The same outpouring that was given to the Jewish apostles, there's, a, there's an outpouring that's being given to Cornelius here. And by the way, some have suggested that because Cornelius couldn't do what an apostle could do, he was not therefore baptized in the Holy Spirit. May I just remind all of us to think about something. Is it true or false that Jesus was baptized in the same element that you and I were baptized in? Was Jesus Christ baptized in the same element that you and I were baptized in? Water. Yes. He was baptized in water. I was baptized in water. Was it for the same purpose? Not in a million years. Because Jesus had no sins, I did. And he didn't need to have remission of sins because he'd committed no sins. So if he could be baptized in the same element but for a totally different purpose, then it's also possible for someone to be baptized in the same element but for a totally different purpose. Cornelius was not baptized in the Holy Spirit to receive some kind of apostolic authority. He was baptized in the Holy Spirit to send a message that says, Do you see these folks right here that are receiving this outpouring? That is my exhibit A from heaven that they are eligible for kingdom membership. Yes, the Gentiles can enter the kingdom. They can. I want them to. And Peter sees this. To show you that he knew that this meant they were eligible for kingdom membership, watch what happens in verse 47 of Acts 10. Peter says, Can any man forbid water that these, these Gentiles, should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? They didn't receive the Spirit to save them. They needed to be baptized to be saved. But the Spirit's outpouring upon them was the exhibit Peter needed to be able to know that God was approving of them for kingdom membership. And so, verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they prayed him to tarry certain days. Now here's where I want to draw this all to a nice little tidy package. What do you take home with you tonight? Here it is. Number one, I learned from Acts chapter 10, all men can be saved. Number two, I learned that you can be a good moral man and still be lost. I don't know what your status is here tonight, whether you're lost or saved. I know that I've preached many times where some of the folks in the building were some of the nicest, most moral, give the shirt off of their back kind of people to the poor. They would do anything to help their community. They were known for being generous and religious, moral men and women. True or false, Cornelius was a good moral man who was lost, who needed the blood of Christ. You see, as good as you are 
None of us starting behind me and coming forward can be good enough not to need the cleansing blood of Jesus. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. All need the blood of Christ, the cleansing blood of Christ, who are accountable. We need that. And I'm going to say that whether I'm talking to a Jew or a Gentile, red, yellow, black, white, doesn't matter. We all need the blood of Christ. And that is what Cornelius needed. He needed the blood of Jesus Christ. So you can say, well, I'm a good man. I'm a nice man. That's wonderful. So was Cornelius. But he was lost and needed to hear words whereby he might be saved. Do you have the same kind of open-mindedness that he had? Or are you sitting there tonight? Or will you watch this or listen to this later on the Internet or wherever the case and say, you know what, I'm good enough. No, you're not. None of us are good enough not to need the blood of Christ. We all need the blood of Christ. And Cornelius needed it. Here's the next point, third. A religious man. A religious man can be religious and religiously wrong. Was Cornelius religious? Who can doubt it? Feared God with all his house. Prayed to God always. He's not an atheist, that's for sure. So if he's religious, is that enough? Will you hold your place here and go with me to Matthew 7? And I want to ask you a question that should be very sobering if you are a religious-minded person. Are you absolutely certain that the religion you're practicing is acceptable in the sight of God. Cornelius was practicing a religion that was obviously not sufficient to save him. He needed to do something different than he was doing religiously. And it may be that you and I need to review our religion and make sure it's an approved religion in the sight of God. Because here's the situation that's so very clear in Matthew seven twenty one. Not every one that says to me, Lord, Lord, stop. We're not talking about atheists here. We're not even talking about Jews here who don't believe he's the Lord. We're talking about folks who call him Lord and believe he is that so much that they'll say it out loud. They'll say, Lord, Lord. Jesus says, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will? But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And then this sobering scenario. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have... Notice what they're calling him. They're not atheists. They're not Jews who don't believe he's the Messiah. You're the Lord and we believe that about you. And we know that you're God's only begotten Son. And we've preached about you to others. Have we not prophesied in thy name? They claimed that he even done miraculous things on his behalf. And they had in his name done many wonderful works. If I ask you, is this man lost or saved? He believes Jesus is the Lord. He talks about him all the time. Preaches about him all the time. And he does a lot of wonderful works, lost or saved. Jesus said that some folks who call him Lord, who preach about him, and who do many wonderful works for him, are the very same folks that he will look at someday and say, I never knew you. That wakes me up. How do I make sure I'm not in the category of those who 
thought they knew Jesus only to find out he doesn't know them. Can you imagine on the day of judgment, you think the Lord's going to recognize you, and all of a sudden he says, no, I've never known you in an approving sense. You say, well, how is it possible that he doesn't know them? They call him Lord. They're doing wonderful works for him and prophesying about him. How does he not know them? I'll tell you to go back to the last phrase in verse 21, and this must be the answer. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven... That's the person that's going to heaven. So here's what I can guarantee you tonight. Guarantee it. If the people in verses 22 and 23 had done the will of the Father in heaven, would they be going to heaven? Yes or no? Sure. The fact that they're not going to heaven is proof that they've not done the will of the Father in heaven sufficiently. Did you hear about the farmer that left his boys his will? And he said, boys, when I die, I want you to build a fence at this spot on the property. And the boys looked at that and said, you know what? Father was a genius. That is exactly where that fence ought to go. We couldn't think of a better place to put a fence if we were to try to decide for ourselves where one should go. That's where we think it ought to go as well. Yes, father is brilliant. Second thing. I want you to build a barn at this spot on the property. That is the perfect location for a barn. Father was brilliant. Third thing, I want you to dig a well at this spot on the property. You know, Father was a genius, but what, brother, do you think that's where that well ought to go? No, I think Father missed that one. So three things their father's will said to do. I'm going to ask you a question and listen carefully. Three things their father's will said for them to do. And how many of the three things did those boys submit to their father's will? It's easy to say two, but two's the wrong answer. He said, no, no, no. They they built the fence where father's will said. And why did they build it there? That's where they thought it should go. It just so happened that their will and their father's will coincided on that element. And why did they build the barn where their father's will said to build it? Well, that's what they thought the barn should be, where they thought the barn should be. The first time their will and their father's will clashed, what did they do? Jettisoned their father's will and did their own. There are people in the religious world, they'll do this because, yeah, that that just so happens to coincide with what I think the will of God ought to be. And yet this, I think that's what I think the will of God ought to be. But the first time the Father in heaven's will and their will collide, some of those folks will worship the way they will to worship, Colossians chapter 2. They will go by the plan of salvation they will to follow, not the one given on the pages of the New Testament. And so, I'm telling you tonight, it's possible to be religious and to be religiously wrong. Saul of Tarsus, true or false, was as religious as a man could be. So religious that he was persecuting the way unto death. And Jesus had predicted something in John 16 in verse 3. He said, the time's coming when whoever kills you will think he's doing God a service. He will think God's proud of him. Yes, 
Kill those Christians. Kill them. Kill them. I want you to do that. No. Saul of Tarsus sees the Lord on the road to Damascus. He is not told by the Lord what to do right on the spot. He's told to go and wait for a preacher. And he goes into the city and there it shall be told thee what thou must do. Sounds familiar. Acts 10. Cornelius, a preacher is coming to tell you what you ought to do. Saul, you go into the city and you wait for a preacher who will come and tell you what you must do. And so neither case is a case of direct revelation from an angel or from Jesus himself to the apostle uh, Paul, as he will later be known, to Saul of Tarsus on this occasion. And Cornelius, no, they're told to send for a preacher. I'm telling you tonight, preaching is still the way faith is produced. Faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. And that is why, if I can get on a little soapbox here for just a moment... Have you heard about some churches that are deciding they're done with gospel meetings? Why? No one comes anymore. Friends, can I lovingly say something to you tonight? Just because some have lost their desire to be spiritually minded doesn't mean the rest of those who want to be spiritually minded should have to suffer and miss out from hearing the Word of God preached. We need to preach this book whether people want to hear it or don't want to hear it. And the only way the seed can be put into the hearts, the soil of men, is for someone to take it and broadcast it there. And no, a gospel meeting's not the only way to get that job done. But I'll tell you, I don't think it's helpful for churches to just start capitulating and say, well, we give up. No, preach, 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 and keep preaching, and that word will fall on honest and good soil, and folks will be saved. Mark it down. Cornelius, good soil. He didn't say, I've already got my mind made up, Peter, whatever you say, you better not cross me. The moment you say something I don't agree with, you're out of here, mister. No, we are here before God to hear all things commanded of you that are commanded of us of God. I close out by telling you that I'm thankful there are still some Corneliuses in this good old world of ours. There are still some Sauls who... Yes, he said, I verily thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But once he found out what he was wrong about, he was humble enough to admit, I've been wrong about Jesus and who he is, and I'm going to fix that. I'm going to change. And he goes and he waits for the Lord to send him a preacher to tell him what he must do. And isn't it interesting, Acts 9.11 says, Ananias, you're looking for a praying man. I want you to go to a praying man and tell him what to do. Well, if prayer is the way to be saved, what a perfect opportunity. Find the man that's already engaged in prayer and just tell him what to say. So Ananias gets to Saul, and Saul remembers this in Acts 22. Ananias came and said, Arise and... Well, he didn't say stay in your posture, your prayer posture. He said, Get up. Well, I thought I'm supposed to pray and ask Jesus to come into my heart. That's not the way to be saved. According to the New Testament, no. 
Get up, arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's how you call on the name of the Lord, and that's what you must do. Do you have the humility of heart to receive it? Yeah? There was a couple I mentioned to you last night that said to me in a Bible study, wait, you're not trying to get us to leave our denomination to join your Church of Christ denomination because you're the best denomination of all denominations. You're asking us to leave all denominationalism and just to be members of the same Church of Christ we read about in Acts 2. That's the church you're trying to get us to become members of. And when I said yes, they said, shall we go to the pond? They were ready. And you know what? What happened after the day of Pentecost? You start off with one church and then you end up with all these others. How did it happen? People started adding what they shouldn't have added, subtracting what they shouldn't have subtracted. And I tell you, one of the most potent illustrations of this ugliness of religious division is illustrated by the little girl who was walking along with her daddy And where's Mama? Why isn't Mama with them? Well, Mama goes to her church across town, you see. Next Sunday, the daughter will be with her at her church. But it's Daddy's turn this Sunday, and so she's with Daddy going to his church he grew up in. And she's yo-yoed back and forth from one Sunday to the next. And so on this particular Sunday with her Daddy, she hears the bells ringing at the church building her mother goes to. Daddy, can I ask you something? You can ask me anything. Does God do all things for the best? What a question. Does God do all things for the best? Yes, he does, honey. Watch the wisdom of this little girl. Daddy, if that's true, if God does all things for the best... Why didn't he just make one church so you and me and mama could all go together to the same place? My friends, he did. He made one. And it was the right one and it should have remained the one. And yet men came along and started modifying it to suit their own whims and wishes. No, the same gospel saves all men on the same terms That's the fourth observation. All men can be saved. It takes more than being good and moral to be saved. It takes more than being religious to be saved. And the same gospel saves all men on the same terms. So here's your chance tonight to obey the same gospel Cornelius did, the same one Saul of Tarsus obeyed, and when you're done, you'll be added to the same church they were added to, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, the undenominational, pre-denominational church church of Jesus Christ. This is your chance. Maybe you are a member of that church, but not acting like it, not living like it. Won't you please reflect upon your destiny right now and fix it? And without any further delay, march down one of these aisles and say, I am not about to take a chance that I'm going to be on the day of judgment having the Lord look at me and say, oh, you thought you knew me, but I never knew you. Or I did know you once, but then you left me. Don't leave him. Come back to him or come to him now for the first time right now as we together stand and sing. Please come to Jesus who bled for you, won't you?